This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast, sponsored by 3T and the new Exploro aerodynamic gravel bike. Chris, you rode the Exploro out at the Dirty Kanza. What can you tell me about this sweet rig? Well, it is aerodynamically astute. It is uh, ready for gravel. Uh, clearance for up to 47 millimeter tires. You can put 650B on there, 700C. Um, yeah, it's. think about it. You're out in the wind for 12, 14, 16 hours. You want to take advantage of aerodynamics, and this bike is specifically built with with that in mind, um, with bottles on, with mud on it, it's proven to be faster than some road bikes out there. So um, it's got the one-by drivetrain, sleek. Yeah, and this is the bike of the uh, Panaracer Stands No Tubes team, which we wrote about on VelNews.com, the team that's upending gravel by bringing road tactics into it. I called them the Team Sky of mm. gravel. People got really bent out of shape on Twitter about that. <laughs> anyway, thanks to 3T and the new Exploro for sponsoring this week's episode. Let's get to the show. Honestly, at mile 21, I was in tears. Like, early. Because I was so overwhelmed that like I'd been working on this for so long, wanting to do it for years... And I was finally actually here, like in the middle of it. I totally broke down in tears at mile 20. All the miles, all the sacrifices, all the training, like my wife letting me do it, you know, the time I missed with my kids, like all of it just hit me at one time. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a low moment, but it was like a really, really emotion-filled moment. You're tuned into the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Velo News. I am joined today by Chris Case, Managing Editor. Howdy. And Spencer Paulson, news director. Hey, Fred. And guys, we're going to talk today about Dirty Kanza, the 206-mile race out in the gravel Flint Hills of Kansas, because Chris and I were out there this weekend. Chris, you actually raced the race. How are you feeling right now? Uh, Not too bad. Yeah. Uh, You know, I'm walking, talking. Do do a lunch ride tomorrow, the throwdown? Uh, (laughs) Probably not. Oh, okay. Chris was really tired at the finish line, yeah. and then the next day, well, I don't he was think fine. I was alone. I don't think I was alone. Were you trying to Were you trying to ask him about his magazine feature? Get yeah. Him, uh, hey, man, a... deadlines. Come on, pal. Hey, let's edit this yeah, real quick. It's a, it's, it's a rough life. <laughs> now, Chris and everyone else very tired at the finish line there in Poria, but he's made an amazing bounce back. And later in the show, we're going to talk all about Chris's race, hear about his highs, his lows, his flat tires, his time in the, w- the wind and the heat. There's mm. lots of wind Nasty. out there. Nasty. But first, we're going to have a discussion about Dirty Kansas itself, because you've probably heard about this race before. This race is sort of the Super Bowl of the American gravel scene. It's a 206-mile race, mostly off-road, held on these dirt roads that are like sharp rocks, out in the middle of nowhere, rolling terrain, it's, hi- it's windy, it's hot, and it's a mass participant event. So while there is some intrigue about what's going on in the front, who's winning, most of the storylines going, going on about the average Joes and average Janes who are participating the in thousands this Thousands of people that are Thousands? Yeah. I was blown away by it's that. unreal. The finish line, just people finishing this race all day in various states of and exhaustion. Into the night. Into the night. And so... You know, the thing about gravel right now is that it's really popular in the U.S. because of the growth of this gravel community and the popularity of these gravel bikes. So, Spencer, what, what is it about the bikes and the community that seems to be fueling this growth? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, to, to start with the bikes, very simply, there's kind of not necessarily a single kind of bike that you see at these races. Uh, probably the optimal setup is is uh, similar to a cyclocross bike, but it has larger tires, like perhaps 40 millimeters wide. Uh, you know, the gear range maybe is a little wider for some of these steep hills. It's designed a little more for comfort, stability, that sort of thing. But uh, the cool thing about these races is that you see practically every kind of bike. You see people on fat bikes. You see people on mountain bikes and tandems and old school cross bikes and all sorts of things. And that kind of gets into your question about the community, which uh, it's very inclusive. And that's reflected in how many different kinds of people, different kinds of bikes you see. And and the fact that 
Most of the riders are simply hoping to finish, hoping to have a good time. You know, they might have a flask in their pocket or something or a little something <laughs> extra to keep them going. Things Hopefully. like that. It's a party scene uh, when you get farther back in the field. But yeah, the front end is a race and um, they care about it and it's really hard. And as you, as you saw yourself, they're, people are pretty shattered at the finish of this. It's, it's a personal challenge is what it comes down to. And that draws the people together creates this very strong community. And, um, yeah, that's something I wrote about for the magazine, the June issue. Uh, there's a story about that, uh, gravel community there called the gospel gravel. You can check that out. Um, but, um, yeah, dirty Kansas is really the nexus of that community. Chris, did you have a flask with you when you were racing? I wish I did. I did not, especially, uh, late in the race when the, uh, chase lounge came out, Mm. I saw it on the horizon. I really wish I had a flask at that point. Well, again, we're going to hear all about Chris's race here. Yeah, we're going to just thread it through. So you all might be wondering, why are we talking about this bizarre uh, mass participant gravel race out in the middle of America's heartland? This isn't pro racing. This isn't Chris Froome. This a, isn't yeah. Peter Sagan. It's about the farthest, farthest thing from the Tour de France or anything like that. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's very, very different than what we traditionally cover at Velonews. But the thing is, is that this race specifically is helping lead a movement that is completely changing the face of participatory cycling in America right now. Over the last five to six years, the number of USA Cycling Racing licenses has gone down. Mm-hmm. You talk to people in road racing communities across the U.S., and there is a similar storyline that you hear. Races are going away. Fewer people are showing up to race. It's not everywhere, but you know, road racing in America is changing right now, and athletes are looking for events that aren't necessarily just races, but also some of these events that provide an experience. And adventure. Yeah, and Dirty Kansas definitely, definitely fits into that mold. And speaking of the statistics, Fred, it's it's also seen in, in the industry where there are fewer road bikes being sold now. It's it's been a, a trend of about four or five years where it's a similar decline there. So it's it's sort of across the board. And so when I was at this race this weekend and I'm watching people finishing, I'm watching them at the various feed zones, starting, the gear, the anticipation. You know, it really reminded me of my past experience as a triathlete going to Ironman races. Oh, my God. I know. I can't. I know. Do you want us to cut that out? Should should we cut that off? No. You're talking about the aero bar thing, right? Still going with it. You're okay? (laughs) Um, Here's my my initial take. Wow. Uh, Dirty Kanza is cycling's Ironman. And look... (gasps) I know, like, you know, you know, here's the thing. Keep an open mind. I know that we all have an aversion to triathletes and it brings up images of people in like knee high socks <laughs> with weird bladders attached to their bikes that funnel fluids weird into bladders. their nose. Yes. Um, but, you know, hold that thought real quick and, and follow me on this one. You know, for the last 10 to 15 years, cycling has been on its on the search for its proverbial Ironman. What does that mean? It means the mass participant event that captures the imagination of people, you know, lures thousands and thousands of people to sign up, has them spend lots of money on gear, has them train for weeks and travel and and become repeat customers the thing about some of these other races that have come before it is that you do it once you do it twice you don't really need to do it again yeah you don't get a tattoo on your leg for your office park crit locally (laughs) and the thing about what iron man provides to people and i've done many of them i've been at many of them is it provides this physical challenge that is doable by any person who really sets their mind to it, trains for it, and dedicates themselves to finishing, but is hard enough that you suffer really badly and you go through what I would call an emotionally transformative period. You come out of it, you talk to people at the finish line of an Ironman and Dirty Cancer, which I did, and it was just people like talking about a personal tragedy they may have had in the last 10 years, or like how many times they wanted to quit and how they had to dig deep and, you know, how they hit these just really crushing emotional lows and had to pull themselves out of it. And when you have an experience like that, you kind of grow as a person, you create an attachment to the race. It's a character building type of thing. And because of that, people 
keep coming back and it attracts a certain class of weirdo who likes that type of thing. And look, you know, Chris case. Yeah. For all you want to say about Iron Man and like, we can, we could have a whole podcast talking crap about Iron Man. Would you want to do that? It's a global, it's a global series. There are Iron Man races all over the world. They sell out. It's a very successful business. Um, we won't get into you know private equity being involved. Uh, actually, we used to be owned by Iron Man. Remember that disclaimer? That really? Brief, what was that? A brief disclaimer. period, that like six month period when we were owned by Iron oh. Man. But anyway, Dirty Kansas is onto the same thing. Um, and you know what? We have we have some audio. We have some interviews from the finish line of Dirty Kansas. People talking about the struggles they went through out there. Uh, let's give it a listen. Okay, I'm at the finish line, Dirty Kanza, and I'm joined by... Uh, Ryan Curry. Ryan, where are you from? Uh, from Denver, Colorado. live in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Ryan, you're looking pretty tired. You're covered in mud. You're a little sweaty. How are you feeling right now? Pretty empty, I think, is uh, probably the easiest way to put it. Yeah. What was the low moment for you today? Uh, honestly, the whole segment from checkpoint two to checkpoint three was just pretty tough. That was the first kind of major headwind section and I started getting to some weird kind of mental spots and stuff um, so that was that was pretty tough what do you mean by weird mental spots uh, you know you sort of start to doubt your training uh, you know you start to think you're not as fast as the guys you're with and maybe you know you should have gone out and rode farther the day that it was cold or the day that it was raining but I think everyone sort of went through the same kind of thing today but yeah it was incredible uh, I threw up three times and I peed in my pants, so those were pretty low moments. I've never thrown up, ever, and I was like full on, that's gross, but I'm being honest. Uh, this is my idea of hell. This is my idea of hell. This is my idea of hell. But then I remembered that I read an article that Serena Williams, when she played her match, she was not doing well, and then every time that she started hitting a winner, she would just go... Yes! So every time I would climb a hill, I would say, yes! It was a lot of deterioration. Just, uh, yeah, felt great. Slowly came unhinged. By the end, like, I couldn't eat any of the food I brought, and I ended up just stopping at all of those coolers out there that, you know, families are sitting there with a cooler. And I think I finished on four beers. Like, that's seriously how I, how I came back in. That's the only thing my body could, like, ingest. I had a bobcat run across the trail in front of me, and and that's my spirit animal, for real, no joke. And uh, that's my father. I actually fully believe that my dad has manifested as a bobcat. I'm not joking. I see him all the time, and I saw one. I actually put my bike down on the ground and sat down, got my phone out, and was ready to call my wife because I was ready to call it quits. Um, I had pushed myself too hard and dug a hole I didn't think I'd get myself out of, walking every hill more than a 2% grade. A friend sat down with me, and we just kind of lamented about our life choices for about a half hour or so. Got back on the bike, still cramping pretty bad, but made it to the third sack stop. At that point, that was probably the lowest I ever felt because I was truly, in my mind, done. From 105 to 165, headwind, hot, and rocky. So that's where the wheels came off for me. Um, I took a couple of moments in the shade to kind of regroup. Got into aid station uh, or checkpoint three and decided I was going to take a rest for a half an hour or more <laughs> and, uh, and recouped. Around hour seven, we're riding into these blazing crosswinds and you can't really sit third wheel on the crosswinds because there's only two wheel ruts and uh, I was on the edge there, you know, just a uh, bit of a dark moment with energy and trying to hold that wheel as with some, uh, I don't know his name who came fourth there, but he has some some serious horsepower, so kind of made it through that moment and, uh, and uh, yeah, I got some sugar and caffeine at feed three and that uh, really turned the corner for me. It was uh, honestly, this was this was really hard. I mean, those headwinds today is one of those scenarios where you're telling yourself like you think you're the only person going through it, but you have to remind yourself that literally every other person is going through that headwind issue. So, yeah, I think this was one of my biggest like mental hurdle races that I've done in Dirty Kansas because 
I like was never in the lead you know it was always like chasing and always like the negative thoughts of like well I'm probably not gonna win okay maybe I'll get third and you have to tell yourself like no anything could happen and it did today so <laughs> yeah it was a good lesson and like just always move forward and, and keep a, a positive head as much as you can okay did that sound fun? How about the lady who was like, this is hell, this is hell, this is hell? Hmm. That's an interesting way to put what it. about the pee-pee pants? Yeah. Who was yeah, that again? That was Katie Keogh. Yes. She peed the in winner, her pants. The winner Peter pants. That's what it takes to win, huh? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. So one of the elements that we've been covering in this race on VeloNews.com is the dynamic that goes on at the front of the race. Um, for all we can say about the transformative powers of Dirty Kansas for those mid-packers, there's interesting dynamics that go on at the front of the race because in recent years, it has become pretty uh, worth your while to win Dirty Kansas. No, you don't win any prize money, but you know sponsors like it. You get media attention. And so people have started to employ more cutthroat racing tactics. Plus, you can create so much content. Oh, yeah. It. Just mm. like so much content. Gram the heck out of that one, pal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you, so people have been using arrow bars. People have been amassing teams and bringing road tactics to Dirty Kanza. And this has been ruffling the feathers of the establishment of gravel, as I found mm. out by talking to lots of people. I don't know. What do we think? Do we think that these new competitive mm. tactics are just what, ruining gravel? Well, let's go step by step here. So let's start with the arrow bars. Okay. So we had a great uh, sort of debate on our website. We had a column by Jeff Kabush, first time Dirty Kansas racer this year. Uh, he is not in favor of arrow bars. And then we had on the other side, you had a story about Matt Stevens, who won Dirty Kansas last year with arrow bars. And um, it's an interesting debate. Kabush's big point is safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely heard some anecdotes of people crashing while riding the arrow bars. I don't know about you, Chris. Did you see any of that out there? You know, I, I hear Jeff's point. I tend to agree with him that for safety reasons they seem a bit silly. But I personally did not see anybody using them at times that made it unsafe for me or themselves. That didn't, you know, it's a long race. I didn't see everything, so I don't know. What, you know, one of the tricky things I think about this is that uh, the standard is so different for, like, the first 30 riders versus, like, the rest of the pack in terms of, like, how fast they're racing, how tight the pack racing is. And, like, when you're talking about that front group, yeah, it, it's probably pretty dangerous to be in the aero bars if you're, like, mixing it up and fighting for wheels and, you know, dealing with crosswinds and stuff. But, I mean, the back half of the field... A lot of those people are riding on their own or they're riding with a friend, probably even side by side so they can hang out and talk. And um, the aero bar is a more comfortable and and, uh, and efficient way to do it. Well, the other thing to think about is that this is eastern Kansas. It's windy all the time. Huge advantage. And especially this year with there being a block headwind on the way back in. Chris, well, why don't we just ask you? I mean, you had one aero bar on your bike. What was it like riding into that headwind with an aero bar versus if you had just been in the drops? The aero, I mean, the, the aero nar- corn, the, the narwhal, the narwhal, aero corn, <laughs> narwhal. Uh, narwhal's good. We'll do. We'll do narwhal. Yes. Uh, I mean, it it was great to have that out there, and I went with one uh, because I don't know. I wanted to be different or whatever, but uh, two would have been equally as good. Uh, it just gave you more options. Um, it gave you that position that when you're feeling that headwind makes you just feel faster, whether you're faster or not. Um, yeah. So the other then topic we need to talk about team tactics. If we talked about aero bars, what do we make of team tactics? I wrote a story about Team Panaracer Stands No Tubes, which has been very public about bringing team tactics, road tactics, to these gravel races. So basically they have their leader, who's Matt Stevens, and then they have oh, three or four other guys on the team whose job it is to either set a hard tempo and whittle down the group or chase Matt, you know, chase down breakaways or... Um, bring Matt back to the group. There was a situation this year's Dirty Kansas, which he had a flat tire, and one of his team uh, teammates actually gave up his wheel, and then uh, I think they helped chase him back to the pack. Mm-hmm. So there's been some discussion about this, and road tactics are lame, and you know we're doing this as gravel racing. It's all about fun and kumbaya. So why are you bringing road tactics there? Right, um, Chris. I don't know. What do you make of the you know, introduction of road tactics? I- 
I think the the I'm not going to give you a hot take necessarily. I'm just going to say I think it's is a little bit lame, but anybody it, there's not against the rules. You can do whatever you want. It's choose your own adventure. That's what the the sort of the beauty of this racing is. People at the front race it like a race. People in the back don't. So yeah, I mean, would it be nice if if people didn't bring that mentality to it and they just sort of went out and made it a solo effort and all that? Sure. If you start introducing a whole bunch of rules to eliminate racing or eliminate this or no aero bars this, then you turn it into things that people don't want it to be as well. So Yeah, so it's more rules just aren't going to do it for me. I it, it makes the race a lot harder when you have teams involved like this. I certainly personally experienced that when I did land one land run 100 right. earlier this against year. the pan racer yeah team, the pan correct. racer guys were there and they they smashed it but i mean matt stevens didn't win dirty kansas this year now did he ted king won it uh it looked like he did have one teammate to sort of help him because they were riding together at the end there yeah not, not his teammate oh no they no. just were wearing the exact same velocity just kit. uh wearing the same kit weird coincidence yeah <laughs> interesting but ted no ted was very public about it we were not teammates in fact i dropped him um so I okay don't know. fair enough fair enough um, you know, right now it's a little lopsided because there is the Panaracer team. I think eventually there will be other teams. Surely there the will, yeah. And, you know, and then that will cause its own issues, I suppose. But right now it's a little lopsided in the field because of that strength. No, yeah. there's other teams. There's Meteor X Giordana. There is a team with uh, one of the winners from 2015. Um Oh, I forgot that he's a Kansas guy. Apparently, he got had amassed oh. a, a team of two or three. Brian okay. Jensen, Brian Jensen, had yeah. a couple other teammates out there. So, from what I had heard, there were a few Where other were my people. teammates. I know. What's Where the, were they? I guess Delaney. I was at the finish guy. line, man, interviewing people. <laughs> Well, what about the women's race, though? That's another area where tactics become a little fuzzy. Um, that's something that was discussed after that race. I have one more. I have one more point I want to make about the team tactics thing. Oh, sorry. Okay. So. So long as it's a race and there's glory and there's incentive yeah. to win, even if it's just a belt buckle, um, people are going to find – people are going to work within the rules to win. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. there's no rules that say you can't work as a team. There's no rules that say you can't employ road team tactics. I talked to Jim Cummins about this, the race director. He said – they do not worry at all about what goes on at the front of the race. They are 100% focused on the experience of mid-pack. And so if people want to great. create teams, if they want to do team tactics, if they want to have arrow bars, whatever, they are more than willing to do that. And so while I do I, – I am somewhat sensitive to – you know, the spirit of the race and the gravel community, and this isn't, you know, in the, in the spirit of what we're trying to build. You know, I also realize that things change and experiences change yeah. and races get faster and people want to win. And so long as there's a certain amount of glory that comes from winning Dirty Kansas, people are going to want to win. And I, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. And yeah, now we should talk about what goes on in the women's race because there's this similar dynamic that plays out here. Um, that dynamic is that, you know, the fastest women's racers, a lot of times the strategy is whether or not to try and make it into the front group of men. Because if you make it into this group, you can get towed along, or you can basically just, you can have pacers, you know, you can have pacers and ride in a group for miles and miles and miles. And I've talked to a number of women that have raced it and won it. And they said that, yeah, you know, the gamble is always, do you really bury yourself to make it into one of these fast groups of men. And, and just, to, just to be clear, everybody's starting at the same time. Right. So it's just... No categories. No, no categories. categories. Yep. Or do you go with a conservative approach and hope that the women who start really fast blow up? I mean, that's the similar dynamic that plays out with the men. Like, do you start fast or do you start conservative and wait for people to blow up? Um, you know, this year we saw a situation in which the winner... Katie Keogh started fast. She's a cyclocross racer. She buried herself to make it into that first group of men. She rode with them for the first 25, 30 miles. Then she dropped off. She rode with the second pack, because this is what she had said, for the next, um, you know, basically till mile 100. And then at mile 100, she continued. She did have her husband riding with her, um, Luke Keogh. Um, she said on Instagram that, um, you know, Luke is coming back from an injury or he's been off the bike for a while, so he's not super strong. Um, she, you know, she rode with her husband. She crossed the line with him. Um, and apparently she took some flack online 
because some people felt that that was not within the spirit of the race, which was... It's not the first time a woman has taken flack either. Right, right. It sounds like in the past this has happened before. Yeah, with uh, Amanda Nauman last year and in previous years, there has been chatter about her and her boyfriend working together and having other teammates and them working together and that being a, you know sort of against the spirit of of that type of racing but it's it's similar to what we were just talking about it's not against the rules when there's a victory on the line people will you know they'll do what they need to do to win plus i feel like it's smart well yeah you know and like so so to taking nothing away from katie keogh she pedaled all 206 miles um in order to get to the the point where she could ride at the front, you have to be very strong, very talented. And she, and she did it. Um, but you know what, from the talking to the people that finished this race, like there's moments where you're really low. There's moments where you need some support and to have a loved one with you. I can only imagine that that would probably <laughs> help you out. You know, is that saying it's an unfair advantage? No, because what is fair? It's within the rules. Is it saying that is it, it is an advantage? Maybe I got to think it is, but if it's an illegal, if it's a legal advantage, then why wouldn't you want to do that? It's like, would you enter a time trial and bring your road bike if you really wanted to win? No, you'd bring your time trial bike. Yeah. I don't have a time trial bike. Exactly. <laughs> well, you're not going to win any time trials. Would you bring either. your clip-on arrow bars for the <laughs> Dirty Kanza? Mm, tough one. Maybe Spinashi. <laughs> or, or the old-school uh, Greg LeMond bars that mm, like extend, bars. They yeah. extend the bottom of the, air, of the drop. That'd be mm-hmm. pretty dope. Anyway, all I'm trying to say, <laughs> don't give Katie Keogh a hard time because she had her husband ride with her. You know, yeah, she, she peed her pants. Give her a break. Yeah. All right, guys. So getting back to the spirit of racing, um, Ted King, the uh, winner. 2016 and 2018, I sat down with him before the race to talk about how the dynamics have changed and what he thinks about sort of the spirit of racing. Should we, uh, should we listen, hear from Ted King real quick? Let's do it. All right, let's hear what Ted King has to say. Uh, okay, I'm in a coffee shop right now in downtown Emporia, Kansas. It's very nice and air-conditioned in here as opposed to outside where it's really hot. Joined by Ted King. Ted, this is going to be your fourth Dirty Kansas. This is going to be your third Dirty Kansas. How have you seen this event change in just three years? Great question. I think we are now in year 13 or 14. Um, and so, yeah, even in my short period of now in my third Kanza, I've seen um, it's now something of a road race. Uh, even going from one year one to year two, for me, um, you know, you see a big group. You see a Peloton roll away. I had some bad luck last year, and so you know, and I'm on the side of the road starting to change my flats. I see a group of 10, 15 dudes rolling up the road. Um, so that's a challenge. It's part of the charm of the race. Uh, it's definitely getting faster. You see a ton of hitters here this year, current pros, former pros, uh, across all disciplines. The race is getting fast. Yeah, it's one of the interesting dynamics with this race is there is sort of this movement to try and keep Dirty Kanza grassroots and try and preserve the original spirit of the race which is about personal adventure and personal experience yet there's media here there's a certain cachet from winning you know people want to win and that makes the dynamics a little more aggressive where do you fall on that what are your current thoughts and opinions about the evolution of dirty cans and and the racing tactics i'd be remiss if i didn't say king of the ride podcast i started a podcast and i'm delving into this exact thing it's like what is the direction the sport's going um because everything you just said the sport uh, the, the the genre of gravel racing is getting faster so my take is that it's a good thing i think what's really cool about gravel racing as opposed to other types of road racing if you're in a road race and you get dropped on the first climb your day is done you may as well turn around and go home get in your car and you know commiserate there whereas in gravel you find your people, you find your tribe. If you get dropped in the first climb and you're in the fifth group, you're probably supposed to be in the fifth group. If you're in the first group, you're probably supposed to be there outside of like extenuating you know, mechanical circumstances. So if it's getting faster and it's bringing more people, that's, that's great. Um, I'm, we can delve into details. Like I'm not a huge fan of, of prize money. I don't think that's where it needs to be at. I think it's really cool to race for belt buckles and cowboy hats and, and bottles of booze, but... Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're, as an industry, it's, 
enormously catching on. Um, the number of events are booming. I think it's kind of like starting a microbrew 10 years ago. It's like, at that point, it's, it, you're still ahead of the game. So, I think it's awesome. More people on bikes, it's great. How do you preserve the spirit of the racing, though, when you start hearing things like, you know, teams potentially, like, using radios and team tactics and, you know, blocking and um, sort of the road-type tactics that we see in, you know, sort of Cat 3 to Cat 1 road races? How does that change the spirit of the race, and what are your thoughts around that right now? It does certainly change the spirit. Uh, I've been in a few gravel races where team tactics are playing a, playing a role. It's curious. Um, for the time being, it's nice that, that it's sort of the Darwinism effect. Like, you might have a super strong... No, you might have a big team, but the strong will survive, and then it's less of a tactical game. It's like, well, you dropped your three teammates, so it's just me and you, pal. That's helpful. I think that will change in time as more people are getting into to the gravel scene. Um, I think without the the prize money you can't share a belt buckle um so you know there might be two dudes or domestiques but you know where, where's their cachet so that's helpful um i i don't have a great answer for it and you know that's really why i'm trying to explore it myself too what does this race look like five years from now magnificent question um i i would like to I had an interesting talk with the organizers yesterday about obviously aero bars are a hot topic right now. I would be happy to see those banned. Um, they are in the rules, so you know for the time being, play by the rules. Um, what is this event in five years? I think what this race is absolutely charming. We're in downtown Emporia, a town of twenty-five thousand, and on Saturday evening at the end of the race, as people are rolling in, it is a there are so many people who come out. The town becomes a festival. That's what has really endeared it to me. Um, it's unlike any other race that I've ever been to. And I think that will always continue. The infrastructure of the of the town and surrounding towns basically caps it at about 2,000, 2,500 people. Um, I think it will grow a bit as more people open their homes and have this uh, Airbnb atmosphere. So, you know, I don't, I don't picture... I'm not... Let the DK Productions do whatever they want. That's outstanding. I'm really proud of what they've built. Um, but, you know, it's cool that, that it is 2,500 people, and it's capped out. And I think there will remain a really cool core to this event that, that your typical stage race, crit series across America does not have. Uh, last but not least, talking about what's going on at the front of the race, um, this year, Rebecca Rush, who has won this race uh, multiple occasions and actually won the Dirty Kansas XL 350 mile race this year for the women. Yeah, for the women. For the women. That's a yeah. long time on a bike. She came out with an, a set of guidelines to um, help guide people in these gravel races. Not necessarily um, official rules, but sort of unofficial rules. Yeah, an ethic. Uh, an ethic. An ethical code. Code. And the ethical code uh, spelled out the acronym SHARK, S-H-A-R-K. Mm-hmm. Chris, what did SHARK stand for? Safe, honest, accountable, responsible, and kind. Mm. And she said she picked that one up from a first grader. <laughs> Good. That's- Which, you know, keeps it nice and simple, but also keeps it exactly what she wants it to be pretty much nailed it yeah code a code it's not like this lengthy rule book it's just this is how you should behave in life and this is how you should behave in a gravel race okay so here are my questions um here is my question do aero bars road tactics riding with a potential significant other do those fall into shark hmm i think it depends on your attitude (laughs) that's <laughs> it. That it doesn't answer all the questions. This shark thing, because it's open to interpretation whether arrow bars are safe. Yeah, because it's open to when someone is using them. Okay, you know? so that there, there's an example of of that. Uh, Honest, I would say. Yeah. Any unless you like, uh, it's all cut, out in the open. Cut the there's, course there's, or there's something. No, yeah. yeah. There's no. Yeah. It's all out in the open. Totally. You, nothing dishonest about it. It's just what's happening. Uh, accountable? I think so. Yeah. yeah. 
Responsible, sure. Kind. I mean, if you're racing like a jerk, then that's not the way it is. But well, and I mean, if you're racing to win Dirty Kanza, I think kindness kind of is maybe pretty low on the totem pole as far as those different potential things you need to. I mean, you're racing, right? Come on, it's like you're going to attack someone at some point. It's not very kind to attack someone on a steep hill with after like 200 miles of racing, is it? Yeah, I think one example she might give is, and this again outside of the front of the race is. Okay, somebody's on the side of the road and they either crashed or they uh, had a flat tire and they're, they're having trouble with their mechanical. Don't just blow past them. Ask them if they need help. If they do need help, stop and help them. You know, that sort of kindness. Oh, totally. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that these um, unwritten codes, I, I don't see too many areas where people are going to be buttoned up against them with um, wanting to win or racing to win. Road tactics, you know, that might be it. But here's the thing about Dirty Kanza, and I think this is the same thing you see with Iron Man. Strong pers- strongest person wins. I mean, unless you have a terrible mechanical. Like, I just don't see too many scenarios in which road tactics or arrow bars is going to provide the margin of victory when you're talking about 206 miles you're talking about 13 hour race like those things may give you slight gains here and there but you know the margin of victory this year between first and second place was over 10 minutes second place back to third fourth and fifth was another 10 or 11 minutes Mm -hmm. i mean we're not exactly talking about like teeny tiny margins here these are the types of time gaps you'd see in the tour de france in the 30s or 20s or something when the stages were so long and you, the people would be trickling one, in one by one. Yeah, it's a little bit of a throwback to that yeah. type of bike race, and there's yeah. no question there. Hard I think as... a lot of people think of that sometimes. Well, that's the other thing about this 350. So this year they launched the 350, 350 miles, sort of the answer to Trans-Iowa. Um, they hand-selected 34 riders to give it a try. They started at 4 p.m., on Friday and finished, they started trickling in sat late Saturday afternoon. And, um, you know, this is one of these bike packing races. You, you, you follow the people online and it's sort of about the spirit of the adventure. Um, here's a question I have for you guys. So if dirty Kanza is the opt is this distance in which regular people can train for it and do it, um, yet super fit people can race it and everyone has this experience. What do we make a 350? Is that too long? I mean, is that like longer than the average person is capable of, of riding? I, I think it is. I, I think it is too long for most people. This, I think DKXL will stick around. They will have success probably attracting a certain fringe of people to do this. But if you look at trans Iowa, which is same distance, essentially about 350 miles, uh, Trans-Iowa is around longer than Dirty Kanza, and this year, uh, according to the organizer, was the last year of it. They're going to stop doing it. Trans-Iowa never really picked up steam like Dirty Kanza did. I think in large part that's due to the difficulty and distance of it. And um, for that matter, I spoke to Jim Cummins about it at Sea Otter and um, asked him, hey, you know, because originally they had thought of doing Dirty Kanza as a 350 because they were inspired by Trans-Iowa. And I said, hey, man, you know, do you think that given the fact that uh, Dirty Kanza ended up being a 200-miler to begin with, is that one of the reasons why it was able to attract so many people and become so successful? And he said, no doubt about that. He said, absolutely, we wouldn't have become what we become if we had tried to do the 350-mile thing from the beginning because we just wouldn't have attracted as many people. Interesting. Right now, I think it's it's that sweet spot. It's all relative, of course. You tell some person that doesn't ride a bike that you rode 50 miles and they'd think you were insane. I ride 200 miles. Personally, I think 200 miles for me is a little too long. <laughs> There's a point where it stops becoming, it stops being that much fun. 350, no interest in it. I think it takes uh, not only a physical skill set that I don't have and that most people don't have, it takes a mental skill set that most people don't even want to consider, you know? Well, speaking of that, let's hear from Rebecca Rush. I caught up with her after the 350. Our interview was cut short because Rebecca had to throw up. Um, (laughs) Yeah, case case in point. (laughs) Just think about the number of days in her life that this woman, this amazing athlete, has spent suffering like this. It's unreal. Long time out there. Yeah, we were chatting, and uh, midway through, she laid down. She was like, I got to lay down, okay? And then she's like, I think I'm going to th- go throw up now. So that was now, that, now, that's the kind of interview you don't get at the Tour de France yeah. right there. All right, I'm at the finish line at Dirty Kansas. I see Rebecca Rush. You just won the 350, the XXL. 
Rebecca, let's start with a low moment. What was the low moment out there? Um, the first two hours of the race, really, because I um, kind of came into this a little unprepared. Um, just my gear wasn't all together, and I was really, like, rolled up 15 minutes before the start. And normally I like to be really organized about that stuff, and I was a little off the back this time. Um, and haven't put in the training that I want to put in, so, like, the first couple hours, I'm like, what am I doing, like? a mistake and uh i just made the decision to just ride my bike you know and let you know let go of the other people around me and it, it turned out to be i mean exactly the thing to do and i think a distance this long you really have to respect the fact that you can't really race anyone but yourself anyway so it um yeah i'm traditionally never a fast starter but it's just like diesel engines you know i started catching people and was like oh cool Right on, right on. You know, that is an interesting uh, mental side of it when you do start thinking about the lap, like all the holes in your preparation. Oh, I could have done this. I should have done that. So how did you mentally get yourself past that? You know, thinking? I really just, I had to just sort of hope that my years of experience in ultra-endurance, um, ultra-endurance, you know, taking care of myself, eating right, dealing with the heat. You know, I talked to my coach week before I'm like any suggestions for doing a 350 self-supported race with no training it's like eat drink do all the other stuff right so just really tried to do everything else right knowing that my training wasn't where I wanted it to be thunderstorms lightning Uh, all that stuff what did that do to the experience you know, they were all around me, all these little squalls, and um, but I didn't get hit by them. I kind of threaded the needle, um, but I definitely was looking for places to um, take shelter, you know? Uh-huh. And like, oh, I just kept riding a little faster to, to get through it. How about so. the high point? If we talked about the low point, what was the high point of the experience? All during the night really was um, where I started to find my groove and just really enjoying kind of being out there alone and seeing armadillos and bunnies and you know skunks and yeah it really was kind of really cool evening did you see any weird shit um the armadillo was a little weird i almost hit him yeah but no like visions or hallucinations or anything like that yeah um all right last question what will be the memory that you the always hold on to from this experience what's Um, the lasting memory i'm gonna sit down yeah oh Oh, lasting food drink no, I actually think I might throw up in a minute. Yeah. Lasting memory is that I got to be part of the first ever DKXL. And, you know, it's my longest longest gravel ride. And uh, really was really was an enjoyable bike ride. I just had a good time riding my bike. Did you learn anything about yourself? Always. Every ride I do. Yeah. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Okay. We're back. Before we hear about Chris Case's personal ride at Dirty Kansas, Chris, talk to us about your gear setup because we worked with some sponsors to outfit you with a tricked-out Dirty Kansas bike to make sure you had the fastest time. So what, uh, what were you running? Well, first of all, uh, the bike was a 3T Exploro. Which, you know, we've talked about the Panaracer team. They are riding. I mean, it's, a, it's proven to be a very effective bike at Dirty Kanza. The winner last year, Matt Stevens, on a, on a 3T, his whole team on the 3T Exploro. They call it an aero gravel bike, which, you know, think about that. You're out in Kansas for 13 hours, 14 hours, whatever it might be, and there's winds, and uh, you want all those advantages. Just like you run aero bars, you want a bike that's aerodynamically uh, uh, sound. So this has shaped tubing. Um, it's, it's running a SRAM one by drivetrain. So, um, cuts down on a little bit of the weight cuts down on some of the aerodynamics around the, the bottom bracket. Um, yeah, it's, it's got, uh, multiple or extra, I should say, um, water bottle cage mounts and things like that. So that's the, 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 the central piece of gear. And then, I got an amazing set of wheels, the rims being by Envy and a PowerTap hub. So the the new wheels by Envy, the G23s are specific to gravel, super wide, internal width of 23 millimeters, I I believe, not 21. Um, But just designed with 
gravel specifically in mind. So uh, nowadays people are experimenting with tire pressure and we're running lower and lower pressures, which is ideal for these conditions and terrain. You don't want to be running 60 PSI in these large volume tires. You run lower pressure, wider tire, gives you that volume, and then also these tires have a very um, uh, blunt... The rim. The ri- sorry, the, the, the rim has a very blunt edge to the leading edge. On so the beads, it, yeah. On the beads, so it doesn't cause a lot of pinch flatting or cutting of the sidewalls if you were to, to compress the, the wheel and the, t- sorry, the tire. So then, it, and then it's laced up to a power tap. It's amazing to see all the data. I've been checking that out with uh, Coach Connor, Trevor. Um, hey, sorry. Sorry. Uh, you'll hear about more of our uh, data analysis in a future episode of Fast Talk. Um, the power tap worked flawlessly, you know, uh, collected data. I'll give you a, a little taste. Oh, yeah, let's hear the wattage numbers. So uh, T- if every, anybody out there is familiar with a TSS score, training stress score, 655. So uh, a training ride that I did with in, in, uh, in, in May with Trevor, 112 miles of riding, 12,000 feet of climbing was a TSS score of 300. This was 655. Ooh, I don't know what those numbers mean, but yeah. one of them is twice okay. as big as the other. Yeah, that's a big <laughs> yeah. old suffer Here, score. Here's, here's another one that a lot of people will understand more readily. My kilojoules, which is essentially equivalent to kilocalories burned in the day, was over 8,000. <laughs> that's a lot of Big Macs. Yeah. yeah. Remember the so, Big Mac index? Ooh. Yeah. It's like how unhealthy foods were by how many Big Macs they equated to. <laughs> yeah. That's how Chris, Corner, Chris Horner planned his training. Wasn't yeah. It? That's how Chris Case does his dirty Kansas. He, his dirty Kansas was 15 Big Macs. Ooh. How many gummy bears do you have to eat oh, to get to 8,000 calories? Load. Truck yeah. lot of them. So, so that was the gear, and that was a little bit about the effort. Uh, what else do you want to know about my Dirty Kansas well, experience? I want to know about what was the low moment, Chris Case? The what was moment? the moment when you were like, oh, this, I'm over this? Well, there was, a, there was an early low moment, and that was an hour into the race when I flatted, which you know, really throws off your entire game plan. I'm sitting up front and I'm hoping to do what Katie Keogh does. I'm hoping to get that ride. Pee in your shorts? Ride that wave. Yeah, pee in my shorts multiple times, puke on some people, but also ride the wave of the front group. You know, I'm not putting my nose in the wind, but I'm just taking advantage of Sven Ness. Some, and, say, and, that, some say that you're the Alejandro Valverde of <laughs> travel racing. Yeah. Hey, I wouldn't mind. It works. Um, but yeah, I flatted. Interestingly enough, former editor in chief Ben Delaney flats immediately at the same spot. So it uh, it was it was fine, you know. We you slashed we, your tire right on those we, sharp we, rocks. We cut. Yeah. We both cut sidewalls. Had some issues trying to plug it. And, That's a and, tough and, one to fix so, too. Yeah. yeah, bummer. Anyways, but then I had a riding partner for the next eight ten hours. He's, <laughs> he's a good dude to draft off of. Yes, he, he's he really strong, punches strong through guy. the wind. Yeah, but. The real, like, low moment in terms of my physical uh, being was, I think, around 170. Just turning into a a headwind stretch, so last 50 miles straight into a block headwind. I'm completely depleted at this point. I'm on my own. Came out of the last feed station by myself. And uh, I look down at the Garmin, and it says, you know, like, five and a half miles to the next corner and it's right into a headwind and it's just up. It's like this 4% grade. That was a low moment. That's brutal. (laughs) Um, What about the high moment? What was the best part for you? Let's see. I mean, crossing the finish line in downtown Emporia, this is, I'm sure, very cliche, but you've described Dirty Kansas to be like an Ironman. There's a corridor in Emporia and people are there slamming on the boards, making a lot of noise. They don't know who you are, but they're cheering for everybody that comes in and you just it just picks up your your uh you get a little emotional there. It's probably because you're out of your mind a bit. But that that's a high moment. You know, finishing something that tough is a victory in itself. So you talked about the kilojoules and the watts and the wind and stuff like that. I mean what is the? How would you describe the experience of just pushing pedals 
hours and hours and hours into a headwind. What does that do to you? Where does your mind go when you're doing that? <laughs> uh, personally, my mind goes in a lot of different places. Uh, you try to distract yourself at times. Sometimes you do focus on the positive things that might be going on in your body. Oh, wow, I'm 150 miles in. I actually feel really good. If you start to feel bad, you don't want to focus on that bad stuff. You want to start thinking about, I don't know, someplace else, uh, a beach, a uh, Fellow News Podcast Studio. Fellow News Podcast Studio. Probably not the pizza that you're craving because Mm. that'll set you back a little bit because it won't come for another seven hours. But uh, it's all over the place and highs and lows and it kind of goes with my my stomach was giving me a little bit of issues. So your your emotions go up and down because of that. And honestly, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes you're like, why the heck am I doing this? Tough mental test. That's really what this race comes down to from what I've seen. It's just yeah. like who's got who's got enough of that want to, so to speak. There's a it's it's a you can either stop pedaling and get a rest, and it's gonna take you longer. Or you can just keep on pedaling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked the perspective of the guy in our little audio cut there where he was like, Yeah, I like had to get off my bike and took a rest and took a nap and was there <laughs> sitting around for a while, you know, just sort of like regaining uh, the steam. Here's a question, Chris. Mm-hmm. So you suffered this early calamity. You have a f- flat tire and it knocks you out of that front, front group. People are going fast in that front group, people are racing in that front group. And all of a sudden you lose it and you're forced to just kind of ride. Do you think that was for the best or the worst? Like, had you stayed in that front group, do you think you would have pushed it too hard? I can tell you that based on my 2013 experience, where I was in the lead group until it was four of us, and then I cracked at mile 90, it makes for a really, really, really long second half of the race. This year, I after flatting, I didn't necessarily go the pace that I should have. I, as a racer, went a little bit above that pace, you know, I was, and then I'm having to, I literally had to pass hundreds and hundreds of people that had passed me while I was sitting on the side of the road. So I went a little bit above where I should have gone because I knew based on my power and my heart rate and all of that. Um, so I was going a little bit above that. I would have preferred to stay with that front group, try to manage myself, try to hold back, get sucked along a little bit more, and then dealt with the consequences later. Instead, I was out on my own too much, still above that level, and then had to deal with the consequences later. So, But, but you, you were a shark. I was a shark. Total shark. Well, I, I don't know about you, Spencer. I can definitely see the appeal, you know? I do, too. I kind of want to do it now. Yeah, yeah. Next year. Maybe next year. We could do it on a tandem. Let's do it on a tandem. That's oh, how, I'm, I'm, I'm behind, though, because you're bigger for the draft. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I call not pedaling very much, though, because you're much stronger than <laughs> I me. I mean, if you guys do it on a tandem, though, that's really like doing a 100-mile race. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, so you have true. to do the 350 Split halfway. on the... Oh, God. Think, of, think about that one. <laughs> that sounds awful. Okay. Well... Which chamois are you going to wear, Fred? Two chamois. <laughs> Double the chamois. The old school steak in the chamois. Yeah. Well, it was the Dirty Kanza. Please go to VelaNews.com and read all of our stories. Look at the wonderful photos we have up there because we covered the heck out of it. And we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelaNews.com. Subscribe to the VelaNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VelaNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VelaNews. The VelaNews podcast is produced by VelaNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VelaNews podcast are those of the individual... And as always, we leave you with the, Bur- the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Party Classic Soul Drunk. Mm-hmm.